Uh, this week we're going to continue the journey we've been on in the Sermon on the Mount. And we're coming up next week on the Lord's Prayer, and it, it, what, I, what I prefer to call Jesus' model prayer. Uh, and it dawned on me that I, I think I did a series on that just a few years ago. And, uh, but I guess we're going to have to do it again because it's in the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, I want to go through the Sermon on the Mount. And, and as I've been looking ahead and studying, I've also realized uh, I, I kind of need to go through it again for myself. So hopefully you'll feel the same way. But we're kind of getting into the introduction to that this week in uh, Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 8 where we begin to see Jesus focus in praying for God's glory. We saw him focused last week on giving for the glory of God rather than the praise of men. And now he's going to focus on praying for God's glory rather than the praise of men. And of course, then when he gets into the model prayer and teaches us how to pray, that is a prayer that we'll see is really focused on the glory of God, ultimately. And it shows us what praying for God's glory ought to look like. Uh, but as I said this week, it's sort of a preface to that, or rather the Lord's Prayer is a continuation of this theme that we're going to start into today. I'd like to begin reading in verse 1, and then we'll read through verse 8, and then pray for God's enabling grace. So in Matthew 6, 1 we read, Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them, Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do it a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be done in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And you, when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask him. Let's pray. Holy Father, <clears throat> I do thank you so much for your word. I thank you for our Lord Jesus who uttered these words for our benefit and who, through the power of your spirit, inspired all the rest of scripture for us. I thank you that we have these words preserved faithfully for us so that we can draw nearer to our Lord and Savior, so that we can, as it were, sit at his feet and learn directly from him, even as the disciples did all those centuries ago. We recognize that he has promised he'll be with us always, even to the end of the age, and that he's with us even now. That he really is our teacher today. 
And Lord, I pray that we will all listen to what he has to say through his word. Fill us with your spirit to that end. For all of us who know you, we do know you because of the work of your spirit in our hearts. And we're relying on the continued work of the spirit to enlighten us as to the meaning of these teachings of our Lord so that we might become more like him, better magnify him, and bring you glory in this fallen world. Grant us your grace to that end, I pray, in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Pastor Chip Bell once said something I found pretty interesting about prayer. He said this, Sometimes when we pray, it's hard not to wonder what other people are thinking about our prayer. Did I say the right words? Did they notice that I had trouble finding that perfect phrase? Did they think it was too long? That's a problem I probably would run into. (laughs) Or maybe they thought it wasn't long enough. Did I wow them? Did I embarrass them? Or did I just embarrass myself? All in all, praying in public is a lot of pressure. There are just so many ways you can goof up a prayer. And then what would people think? This reminds me of how self-conscious or maybe conscious of others we can sometimes be when we pray, particularly in a public gathering. And Jesus knows that we can be easily tempted and distracted in such ways, which is why he admonishes us as he does in the passage before us this morning. As we'll see, he warns us first that we should not pray like the hypocrites because they're worried about all these kinds of things that... Chip Bell mentioned. Then he wonders, or warns us that we shouldn't pray like the heathen. And sadly, there are Christians who do pray like the heathen. Or at least professing Christians who do, as we'll see later on. So first, we want to look at the two main points, really, that Jesus has in this text. We shouldn't pray like the hypocrites, and we shouldn't pray like the heathen. And so we'll start with, we should not pray like the hypocrites. And in verse 5, we see again, Jesus says, And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites. And in this passage, remember, throughout this passage, throughout chapter 5 and into chapter 6, the hypocrites are the scribes and Pharisees, the religious leaders who are falsely teaching uh, a false sort of spirituality that he has in mind. And we'll see that that's why he mentions them standing in the synagogues, for example. They're Jewish hypocrites, religious hypocrites. He says, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. And as we saw last week, you really get a choice of two rewards. You can have the reward of the accolades of men in this life, or you can have the reward of your heavenly father in the life to come. And maybe hints of that reward now, but as we saw last week, that's ultimately in the life to come. Now notice here that just as Jesus had assumed that his disciples would give to the poor, we saw that in verse 2. He said, therefore, when you do a charitable deed, he's assuming we're going to do this, uh, so he also assumes that we will pray. He says, and when you pray, not if you pray, but when you pray, 
he says, Don't take your cues from the hypocrites and the way they pray. Now, the Greek word translated hypocrites here, the plural of this Greek word, hypocrites, it's basically translated or transliterated, rather, into English as hypocrite. We just basically took the Greek word and transliterated it and used the same word that was used in the first century to refer to hypocrites today. Um, And with pretty much the same meaning, Now, in the first century, it it often literally referred to an actor or a stage player who put on a false face, right, in a play. But it's used figuratively in the first century and in the New Testament as a moral or religious counterfeit. And so it's translated as hypocrite. It could be translated pretender uh, or a dissembler. Somebody's lying uh, through their actions and the way they're behaving, right? And such were the scribes and Pharisees, uh, predominantly in Jesus' day. Now, we know that there were some genuine believers among them, but for the most part, they were characterized by Jesus as religious hypocrites. They were often just trying to appear as though they were sincerely conversing with God in prayer, but in reality, they were only putting on a show to be seen by other people. And Jesus found this very off-putting, to say the least. Notice also that our Lord Jesus does not say that the hypocrites love to pray, but that they love to pray that they may be seen by men. Jesus doesn't have a problem with our loving to pray. He has a problem with our loving to pray to be seen by men, because that's not the point of prayer. As we'll see as we move on, it's not wrong to be seen by men to be praying. It's wrong to be praying in order to get uh, accolades from men, to impress them, rather than to actually communicate with God. When Jesus uh, says here that just as those who give to be seen by men, so also these hypocrites have the only reward they're ever going to get. That what what they're seeking in this life from other men. But Jesus wants us to seek the approval of God. That's the point of our prayer. Even when we pray in public, the point of our prayer isn't really to seek the approval of the people around us. It's to seek the approval of God. It's to bring glory to him. It's to communicate with him. And yes, that'll be a good example to people around us. And we, and we should want it to be. But for God's glory, not for our own, Right? And that's what Jesus is zeroing in on. Praying for one's own glory is the problem. So he goes on to say in verse 6, But you, when you pray, go into your room. And when you have shut the door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And he describes the Father as in the secret place. Of course, he's described him already as our Father in heaven. Speaking of the kingdom of heaven, he'll go on to call him our heavenly father when he teaches us how to pray. But it's, it's a secret place to us because we don't know where it's at, right? But we know he's there. Right? Other people may not know where we are when we're in our secret place, but God knows where we are, right? And so this secret place, he's just talking about heaven from our point of view because we don't know where it's at. But notice that Jesus uses quite emphatic language when he says, you, over and over again. But you, 
When you pray, go into your room and shut your door and pray to your father. This is a way of emphasizing, once again, you are not like them. I want you to be different. But it also stresses the kind of personal relationship that he wants us to have with our Heavenly Father. It's the kind of relationship you would have with your closest friend and confidant. You say things in secret you wouldn't say publicly. You might say them to your closest friend, but you wouldn't say them in front of a group of people, especially not if you're trying to impress them. Those are the kinds of things Jesus wants you to talk to God about, apparently. The kinds of things you would say in secret that God knows anyway. Jesus is reminding us that although no one else may be present, our Heavenly Father is always present with us, and he always hears us. When we are all alone with no other people present, we may be tempted in our frailty and feelings of isolation, perhaps, to think that God is not there either. But he is there. He is. He's always there. And he always hears. He's always listening. And we should see such times of solitude as a chance to be alone with him. Not alone. Alone with the one who's always with us. Alone with our Heavenly Father. Alone with the Spirit. Alone with our Lord Jesus. But the question arises... I have a, I've already anticipated, alluded to it. When Jesus says that we should pray in secret, is he saying that we should never pray in public? Obviously not, uh, as both his own example and that of the apostles in the early church demonstrates. For instance, and I think I've given you these scripture references in the notes there, before uh, Jesus raised up Lazarus, a good friend of his from the dead, he offered a public prayer that everyone around could hear. And he clearly wanted them to hear it. He said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me, and I know that you always hear me, but because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. He's quite conscious of people standing by listening to him. He wants them to hear what he's saying when he prays to the Father. But the point is, he's not trying to impress them. He's not to try to get the kind of glory that they can give him. The whole point is that they will believe that the Father sent him and glorify the Father. That's the whole point of his public prayer. See, it's right in line with the principles he's teaching here in Matthew 6. So the real issue isn't whether we pray in public or not. It's what motivates us why we're doing it that Jesus cares about. And he puts an emphasis on making private prayer your primary, perhaps, kind of praying, for sure. But he obviously, because we know in, there are many passages that were Jesus in the Gospels where Jesus is said to have gone off to pray alone. But then we also have these times where he prayed in public. We also know that the early church had times of group prayer 
public prayer, such as when the apostles prayed openly for guidance in seeking a replacement for Judas, and that's in Acts 124. They prayed a public prayer for that. Or when, after Peter was miraculously released from prison, he came to the house of Mary, we're told, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. And we're told that the Apostle Paul, after addressing the Ephesian elders, knelt down and prayed with them all. He didn't have a problem with a public prayer, a prayer with other people. And so we see Jesus wasn't ruling that out. Again, his focus is on, our, on the motivation, on what the primary kind of praying is that we should be concerned about. There's a real problem with people who pray publicly only and don't pray privately. Those are the people whose prayers in public are probably going to be for right seeking the glory of men kind of prayers. Because if they really cared about praying, they'd be praying in private. If they really cared about praying for the glory of God, they'd be praying in private a lot, right? And anyway, again, Jesus is not saying we should never pray publicly, such as when we're gathered with other believers in a worship service or a Bible study, or what will happen today when we take prayer requests after the service and then we have one person lead us in prayer, right? Well, Jesus would approve of that. But he's denouncing public praying, we might say, instead of private praying, He's denouncing public praying that is more mindful of the presence of other people around us than of the presence of God, who's the primary person we should always be concerned with when we're praying, if we're praying for his glory. He's denouncing prayer for public show rather than as a part of a personal relationship with God. And I guess we could say that Jesus sees no place at all for pride in prayer. Unless, of course, it's to ask God to forgive you for it. As D.A. Carson has observed, the public versus private antithesis is a good test of one's motives. The person who prays more in public than in private reveals that he is less interested in God's approval than in human praise. Or as A.B. Bruce once wrote, is social prayer negative? negative, he said, I would say negated, uh, by this directory. No, but it is implied that social prayer will be a reality only in proportion as it proceeds from a gathering of men accustomed to private prayer. He's on the right track, I think. Here's some helpful warning signs suggested by Bob Deffenbaugh in a sermon on this passage that I found helpful. Here's some things he says that we should think about or ask ourselves when we're praying in public in particular, to try to assess what our motivations really are. He writes, do I have an I am speaking to God voice? This may be a matter of upbringing. Uh, I, I noticed that in the South, when I lived in the South. There was just a way people, preachers spoke, there was preacher talk. It's the way they all the preachers sounded the same, right? And if they grew up listening to these kind of preachers, they all sounded like that. And it wasn't fake. It was just what they thought was the way you preached, right? 
Um, but then there are people who put on a false voice to sound more, you know, spiritual or something like that. Sometimes those people want to resurrect the these and thous of the King James Bible, too, for example. Now, some people do that not because they're trying to put on a show, but because they grew up listening to the King James Bible and they've always prayed like that, right? Or reading the King James Bible. Or... These are things to think about. Um, and he writes, no such language is needed, and such a change in voice can draw attention to the one praying, unless, he says, one is in an environment that expects it, in which case not changing the voice can draw attention, right? Uh, that's probably true. He says, do we tend to use elegant words and lots of them, even if maybe we don't usually speak that way? Uh, now, this may, he writes, be a matter of gifting and natural oratory, but again, none of these things are needed when we talk to God. Or is there a personal agenda? He writes, it's hard to excuse this one. You pray according to what you want done and what others need to do to help it along. So your public prayers are really a form of manipulating the people around you to do what you want them to do. I think that kind of manipulation is bad whether you do it in prayer or not, personally. But he writes, gossip is an issue. Uh, gives an example. Please, God... Help Jane resist the temptation to keep seeing that guy. Such public prayers are only fruitful if Jane is there and has asked for intercession on that subject. Or I would argue um, they're only fruitful if the issue is already known or ought to be known by the group, right? But some people will gossip in prayer, public prayer. They'll even get in a dig at somebody. Well, that's right out of the scribe and Pharisee handbook is what that is. One last thing that he says is public prayer of any kind without a private prayer life is a problem. It is a given that if you're not speaking to the Father when you are alone, there's no good speaking to him publicly. Well, I wouldn't say there's no good in it. Sometimes people who haven't prayed like they should by themselves feel convicted by that in a prayer meeting and pray out of that conviction. And that's not a bad thing. It's, again, it's a problem if your habit is only ever praying publicly. And you have no private prayer life to speak of. There's a good chance, if that's the case, that you're a hypocrite in your praying. Anyway, those are some helpful suggestions I found to aid us in following Jesus' instruction to avoid praying like the hypocrites. But we know he has more to say, which leads to our next main point, which is, of course, as I've said before, his next main point, and that is that we should not pray like the heathen. The answer to not praying like the hypocrites isn't to go the other direction and learn your praying from the heathen. Right? No, no, no. Don't want to do that either. He says in verse 7, and when you pray, again, assuming that we're going to, true believers will want to pray. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Now, the Greek word translated heathen here is ethnikos, which is often or typically translated as Gentile. It's a non-Jewish person. But in this context, it's used in a negative sense. Um, in contrast 
to the adherence of Judaism. And, and so it carries the sense of heathen or pagan. Um, so our Lord Jesus does not want us to be like those who falsely follow the true religion, on the one hand, as we've seen, but neither does he want us to be like those who truly follow a false religion, like the heathen. And those are the two extremes. There are right, people who falsely follow the true religion. We don't want to be like them. We want to truly follow it. And then there are people who truly follow a false religion. Right? We want to be like them in their sincerity, but not in the false religion. A good illustration from Scripture, the kind of prayer Jesus is talking about, I think, a prayer that's filled with vain repetitions and many words that he speaks of here, may be found in the account of Elijah's confrontation of the prophets of Baal. Because people wonder, what does he mean by vain repetition? Well, you have to look at some scriptural examples of that. And then you have to look at places in the Bible where, where, where repetition is used in prayer and get a balanced perspective on what Jesus is talking about here. What, what does he mean by vain repetition? And we're, we're going to try to get a handle on that if we can here. We can't not do it if we don't know what it is, right? In 1 Kings 18, 25 through 27, there's part of this account of Elijah's confrontation with the prophets of Baal. And it says, now Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one bull for yourselves or prepare it first for you are many and call on the name of your God, but put no fire under it, the bull. And the point is, if their God is real, he'll cause the fire to happen, right? Um, So they took the bull, which was given them, and they prepared it and called on the name of Baal from morning even till noon, saying, O Baal, hear us. But there was no voice. No one answered. Then they leaped about the altar which they had made. And so it was at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is meditating, or he is busy, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is sleeping and must be awakened. And he, sort of he's mocking them for thinking that any being that has to be, uh, whose attention has to be gotten in this way can't be God, right? But notice they said the same thing, oh, Baal, hear us, over and over and over again, all morning until noon. They said the same thing over and over and over again. Vain repetition. To a false god. Another good illustration from scripture is found in Luke's account of the riot in Ephesus that was in response to the way in which Paul, uh, his preaching was hurting the idol market <laughs> there. And um, it created kind of a ruckus. And this guy named Alexander was selected to speak against him on behalf of the Jews. And this is in Acts 19, 33 and 34. We're told that they drew Alexander out of the multitude the Jews putting him forward, and Alexander motioned with his hand and wanted to make his defense to the people. But when they found out that he was a Jew, all with one voice cried out for about two hours, great is Diana of the Ephesians. So all these people chanted for about two hours over and over again, great is Diana of the Ephesians. They're appealing to Diana. This is vain repetition. We can also find illustrations of such vainly repetitious prayer in our own day, I think. Uh, For example, I think this is rather common in the Roman Catholic Church. 
they're professing Christians, but I, I think there's a lot of vain repetition there. Uh, here's a couple of examples. Praying the rosary, I think, is an example. It includes the repetition, as I understand it, of at least two to three Our Fathers, which is the Lord's Prayer, and 13 Hail Marys. And so to pray the rosary, you have to pray a Hail Mary prayer, which is not a biblical prayer at all because you're never supposed to pray to Mary. And if she were here today and she saw people doing that, she would rebuke them quite sternly, I believe. How dare you put me in the place of my son, she would say, I think, if she were here. But it's vain for a couple of reasons. Vain repetition and praying to a false god. To boot, Mary's not God. We don't treat her like one. Now, they say they're not doing that, but cash value is the same in my book. There's also an organization in the Roman Catholic Church called the Brothers and Sisters of Penance, and they have one day a year in which they're required to cite 100 Our Our Fathers. You must be extra spiritual if you can cite 100 times the Lord's Prayer in a given day. Now, it's not that we shouldn't repeat the Lord's Prayer, because we should, as we'll see. It's a hundred times in a day, thinking somehow that's going to make you more spiritual. Maybe not. Maybe we're at least bordering on vain repetition there. I would also offer another kind of example. It was from a group of evangelical charismatics that Kim and I once encountered uh, I think we were still living in Virginia when I was stationed in Norfolk in the Navy at the time. We were at a worship service, and we should have been clued in when it said on the sign outside, spirit-filled worship. Now, we should have spirit-filled worship, but people who advertise that are usually people who think they can drum that up in a certain kind of way. And so we should have, that we should have seen that as a hint to what we might encounter when we walked inside and this group were singing each song over and over and over again. Uh, for one praise song, we lost count of how many times they sang it, I think at about seven or eight times. We just lost count. And by that time, we quit singing anyway. And we're almost wishing we were somewhere else. The point was to keep singing until you had some kind of an emotional thing happen and then equate that with the presence of the Spirit. I think that was the goal. To me, it's just vain repetition. As uh, James Montgomery Boyce once said, that's not worship, it's a mantra, right? Uh, that He was probably right about that. That's, it's more like that. So today, even some who call themselves Christians may be involved, I think, in vain repetitions such as the heathen do, although I think they're unaware of it. But Jesus clearly says that we shouldn't be like the heathen, as we see emphasized again in the first part of verse 8. Therefore, do not be like them. Um, Jesus is quite clear. Uh, and when he says, do not be like them, again, he's saying that we should never, he, uh, we have to ask the question, is he saying that we should never pray at length? Or that we should never repeat the same prayer? Is he saying it's always, is repeating a prayer of necessity vain repetition? 
is praying lengthy prayer of necessity, vain repetition. I, would, I think Jesus' answer to that would be no. I think the scriptural answer to that would be no. You can repeat certain prayers. The issue is, what's your point in doing it? How much are you doing it because of that point, right, in doing it? Um, we know Jesus prayed long prayers, for example. In Luke 6, 12, we're told that it came to pass in those days that he went out to the mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. He's all for long prayers. <laughs> Praying a long time, right? Um, Jesus also taught us to be persistent in prayer, and that even means repeating the same request repeat over and over, right? Um, he tells a, a parable about this um, in Luke 18, 1 through 7, where he encourages a certain kind of repetition. Then he spoke a parable to them that men ought always to pray and not lose heart. See, if, if, if a reason that we don't bring the same request to God is that because we be, become discouraged and think he doesn't care, that's a bad reason not to repeat something to God, <laughs> right? Uh, he goes on to say, there was in a certain city a judge who didn't fear God nor regard man. Now there was a widow in that city, and she came to him saying, get justice to, uh, for me from my adversary. And he would not for a while, but afterward he said within himself, though I do not fear God nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming to me she weary me. And then the Lord said, Lord Jesus said, hear what the unjust judge said, and shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with him? And now notice in the parable, the woman was coming to this judge over and over with the same request. And Jesus said, if an unjust, ungodly judge will listen, if you're persistent in requesting, how much more will God who loves you listen to you? if you're persistent in requesting something for him. Don't get discouraged. Now, of course, Jesus also has a lot to say about the right kind of things to pray, right, uh, as well. We don't have time to get into that today. But the point I'm, I'm wanting to make is repetition in and of itself isn't a problem. We also know that Jesus repeated prayers. We know at least on one occasion he did. And that is in the Garden of Gethsemane. In Matthew 26, verses 39 through 44, we read this. And Jesus went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Now, Jesus didn't want to get into vain re repetition, so he never prayed that again, right? No. We're told, then he came to the disciples and found them asleep and said to Peter, what, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again a second time, he went away and prayed, saying, oh, my father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. That's essentially what he's already prayed. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. And so he left them and went away and prayed the third time, saying the same words. That's not vain repetition. 
That's the kind of praying he taught us to do when he gave us that parable about the unjust judge and the widow. That's the kind of prayer that doesn't get discouraged but keeps on coming back to God. There's also the fact that Jesus taught us to repeat a prayer. He gave us a prayer that he offered as a model for as a daily prayer that we're going to be looking at next week, that we begin to look at Jesus' model prayer, often called the Lord's Prayer, in Matthew 6. It's also in Luke 11, 1 through 4, another version of it that he taught at another time. There we read, now it came to pass as he was praying in a certain place when he ceased that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. And so he said to them, when you pray, say, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Interestingly, that was the same kind of prayer he prayed in Gethsemane, right? Um, On earth as it is in heaven, we should want God's will to be done here the same way it's done in heaven. Immediately, right? Give us this day, or give us day by day our daily bread. This is to be a daily prayer. Forgive us our sins. We also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. and Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, we don't have to pray this exact prayer every day, but Jesus doesn't mind if we do. Especially if we're learning to pray. And that's the point of the prayer. They said, teach us to pray. Here's a way you can pray. And you can pray this way every day as you learn to pray. Right? But he, hadn't, he didn't see that as vain repetition. He saw it as a help. As we're learning to pray. So, it's just one more example of the fact that the problem isn't necessarily with lengthy prayers or with repeated prayers. But with thinking that such repetitions and length can avail in and of themselves somehow. Jesus doesn't want us trusting in our praying, but rather trusting in the one to whom we are praying. Vain repetition is trusting in their words to accomplish something. That's what the heathen are trying to do, like incantations or mantras, or something like that. Jesus says prayer is about trusting the one to whom you're praying. You're talking to another person, a personal God. And you're trusting in him, not in your praying. That's the point, I think. And I think it becomes clear when we consider what he says next, in the last part of verse 8. For your father knows the things you have need of before you ask him. Here Jesus gets at the root of the difference there should be between his followers and the heathen, namely the differing views of God that are reflected in their patterns of prayer. Remember what Elijah said? What's he asleep? You got to get his attention? You got to go on like this all day for him to hear you? Christians know the true God isn't like that. So they shouldn't pray as though he is. They should keep in mind who they're really praying to. As we saw, the the heathen, in that example with the prophets of Baal, they worship a God that is limited. 
whose attention has to be gotten through lengthy and repetitive prayers, and who doesn't have the knowledge of our circumstances unless we can somehow get his attention and fill him in on what we need. But we serve the true God of the universe who is both omnipresent and omniscient. He's present everywhere, and he knows everything. That's what Jesus says. He knows the things you need even before you ask him. Your prayer should reflect that. Faith in him. He can be found anywhere we go, no matter how secret. And he knows everything there is to know about us, no matter how private. I think David, King David was also a prophet, provides a very good illustration of a holy awareness of this kind of knowledge of God when we pray. And I'd like to quote from Psalm 139 to give you the illustration that he provides. O Lord, he writes in Psalm 139.1, you have searched me and known me. It begins with, there's nothing I can say to you that you don't already know. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. There isn't a word of my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. I can never know like you know, God. And I can't even really understand how you know all this, right? That's what he's saying. You're so far above me. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence if I ascend into heaven? You're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings in the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall follow me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you. But the night shines as the day. The darkness and light are both alike to you. We can't see in the dark, he's saying, but God can. <laughs> David openly acknowledged in his prayer his trust in the true God as he really is. And his, his praying reflected that knowledge. And that's what Jesus wants us to do. Always remember who it is we're talking to when we pray. And that is the thing that should most influence how and when we pray. Just as it influenced always how and when Jesus prayed. The way we pray shows what we really think about God. If we are praying with this notion that God couldn't know it if I didn't tell him, we're already starting to pray like the heathen. That's Jesus' point here. As we conclude our examination of this passage, I'd like to leave you with an observation uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones once made uh, concerning Jesus' teaching here. And I think, I think it's helpful. it was helpful to me. I hope it will be helpful to you. I think it's in your notes. God is everywhere. Take heed that you do not do your righteousness before men. Why? 
else you have no reward with your Father which is in heaven. He sees it all. He knows your heart. Other people do not. You can deceive them and you can persuade them that you are quite selfless, but God knows your heart. I sometimes feel that there is no better way of living and trying to live the holy and sanctified life than just to be constantly reminding ourselves of that. When we wake up in the morning, we should immediately remind ourselves that we are in the presence of God. Remember David's point in his psalm. This is not a bad thing to say to ourselves before we go any further. Throughout the whole of this day, everything I do and say and attempt and think and imagine is going to be done under the eye of God. He is going to be with me. He sees everything. He knows everything. There is nothing I can do or attempt, but God is fully aware of it all. Thou, God, seest me. It would revolutionize our lives, he writes, if we always did that. Well, I think that's why David wrote Psalm 139. And I think this is the point that Jesus had in mind when he says, your father already knows what you need even before you ask him. It's the kind of perspective our Lord Jesus wants us to have, isn't it? He wants us to understand that proper doxology, proper prayer and praise, follows from proper theology, what we know about God. Proper worship and prayer flow from a proper view of God. Let's take a moment to pray. (laughs) Holy Father, we're coming to you this morning with a desire in our hearts to pray sincerely to you and for your glory. Lord, forgive us, we pray, when we slip into praying like the heathen do or like the hypocrites do, and we give in to the temptations of indwelling sin that remain in us to forget who you are, to forget what you've done for us in Christ, to forget how much you love us, to forget that you are everywhere and see and know everything. Help us to ever be mindful that we get to have a relationship with the God of the universe and we get to talk directly to you. That should humble us and bring us low. How privileged we are. How much grace you've shown us to let us talk directly to you. The God of the universe. Help us to never forget what a privilege that is and to long to talk to you always. And that when we do pray in public, It's just an overflow of a conversation we've been already having with you. Help us to be like that. Help us to be more like Jesus, I pray. And for anyone here today who may not know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, it is our prayer that you would please do for him or her what you've done for those of us who do know you. Through the power of your spirit, open their eyes to the truth of who Jesus is that he is the one who is perfectly God and perfectly man in one person, that he was born of the Virgin Mary and that he lived a sinless life and was therefore able to die as the perfect sacrifice for our sins when he gave himself for us on the cross.
that he rose from the dead and conquered death on our behalf, and that he offers us the free gift of forgiveness and everlasting life if we'll put off trusting ourselves and simply trust in him and what he's done for us. Lord, help them to do that, I pray, for your glory and for their good. We ask all these things in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you once again for your kind attention.